Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Hey, now, out of curiosity, how many of you would be right in agreeing with me that this is the greatest candy bar that has ever been invented? Raise your hand if that's you. Yeah. Now, for one of you who has just raised your hand, I need you to come up on stage with me because I want to give you something. So first one up here, you're going get, to uh, get something from me. Sorry, we got it. Oh. <laughs> Jonah, what's up? Now, I just want you to hold out your hand because I'd really like to give you something. Here you go. Those are good and plenty, which are the second worst candy ever made. I couldn't find... Hey, I can't let you open that, sorry. I need it for the next service. (laughs) Second worst candy ever made other than banana Laffy Taffy. You can take it for now. Just hold on to it. All right. This might be the worst illustration in human history, but you're now welcome to go sit back down. (laughs) Now, how do you feel right now about that? Does it bother you that I didn't give him the Reese's Pieces? Peanut butter cup? It bothers us because it just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It's like what I didn't promise him. It didn't seem that's what I was going to do. You might say it was unjust, and you are probably judging me right now for doing that. Now, what if I offered the candy bar to Jonah and he just said, no thanks, would you be okay with that? I just want you to keep both those things in your mind today as we talk about our text. If you are new with us, we have been making our way through the Gospel of Mark together for the last 18 months in a series we have called The Way of Jesus. And in this series, we're spending time with Jesus, learning from Jesus how we can live like Jesus in our own lives. And today, Jesus is going to tell a story about judgment. And I know that in today's culture, especially even in the church today, we would not like to talk about judgment. We'd rather talk about God's love and his mercy and his grace, but I want you to consider something. You can't understand any of those good words I just used, love, mercy, and grace, without also understanding words like justice and judgment. I mean, think of it this way. Could you understand, could I understand what the word light means if there was no such thing as dark? I can't understand what right means without left. I can't understand up without down. And in the same way, we can't understand things like forgiveness if we don't understand what sin is. And if you're following on your notes with me this morning, we can't understand God's love without understanding his judgment. And in the parable of the wicked tenants, which is our story today, Jesus is going to tell a story, yes, about judgment. But if we listen carefully, it is also a tremendous story about justice and grace, and love, and invitation. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to take that now and turn it to Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seat underneath you there. Love for you to grab one of those, pick that up. If you don't own a Bible, I love the story we just heard here, right? God's word is living and active, still changing lives. Take that home with you as our gift and open that up with me. You can find this story on page 824 of those black Bibles. Now, setting a little context, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, starting in Mark 11, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem for the last time. 
And when he enters Jerusalem, you right, remember, there's a big party going on. People are celebrating him, cheering him on. And so he's welcomed into the city. And then he makes his way to the temple where he starts to have a number of different confrontations with the religious leaders there. He cleanses the temple. And the religious leaders come up to him. We looked at this last week and said, by what authority? Who do you think you are that you have the right to cleanse the temple like this? And Jesus pretty much embarrasses them with their answer. And now today, this is still happening. He's still having these conversations with these religious leaders. And Jesus goes on the offensive against them, challenging them and their reception of him using a parable. Now, if you don't know what a parable is, just think of it like this. It's just a story that is trying to make a deeper point. Or if you're following on your notes there again, simply put, parables help us see the way of Jesus and ourselves better. And as I said, this is called a judgment parable, and it's directed specifically to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. So let's look at it together, starting in verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, again, Jesus would draw on familiar things that are taking place in his society, right? He talks about sheep and shepherds because that's what a lot of people did. He talked about wine and wineskins. He talked about masters and servants. And here he chooses this image of a vineyard. And if you are a Jewish person listening to this, your brain is going, oh, I know exactly what he's doing right here. He is referring to this vineyard as the people of Israel. Because often in the Old Testament, God calls his people his vineyard. On top of that, just remember where he's standing right now. He's standing in the temple. And in the temple, there's this column full of vines and vineyards that was seriously symbolic for the people in the Jewish time. You can see a mock-up of this, not the actual temple, but this vine had huge importance for them. Can you see it covering the temple, right? In the eyes of the Jews, it's a reminder, we are the vineyard of the Lord. And so in verse one, we've already kind of got the main character settled in our mind for this story. If you're on your notes, the vineyard is Israel. The owner of the vineyard is God. And then the farmers of this vineyard, the tenant farmers, are the Jewish leaders, both past and present. And as we saw in verse 1, the owner of this vineyard takes care to plant this vineyard, to protect this vineyard, to make sure this vineyard produces fruit. Obviously, the idea here again is that that's what God did for Israel. He called Abraham out of Ur and he said, I'm going to make you a blessing unto all the nations. As the Israelites find themselves in slavery, he sends Exodus to free them. He gives them this beautiful law by which to live by. And then through Joshua, they enter into the land of Canaan called the land of milk and honey. And he places them there and and says to them, I want you to be a blessing to all nations. A beautiful vineyard for others. As the psalmist says, with your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. And then the last part of that verse, the last thing I want to say, is the owner actually expected something from this vineyard, right? If you owned a vineyard, would you expect something? You'd probably expect some wine at some point to be produced. And so he has some expectations that as I give you this good and beautiful land, this vineyard for you to tend to, I have expectations that you will produce fruit for me. 
And the Israelites listening to this, they would know exactly what Jesus is talking about. God planted us as his chosen people to be a vineyard. He cared for us. He protected us. He put place leaders for us to lead us and to guide us in the way of his glory. And he expects that as his people, we will now magnify him, glorify him, or produce fruit for him and his name. Now, real important to understand, I know I'm still on verse one here, but who does the vineyard belong to? The owner, right? The owner of the vineyard owns the vineyard. It's the owner, not the tenant farmers. And I just want to remind us, we say this a lot around here today. It's the same for us. We, one of our five core values is that we say we are whole life stewards. Everything, if you're a follower of Jesus, now belongs to him. He is the owner of my mind, my body, my relationships, my kids. And I simply am stewarding that for him and for his glory. All of these things we have, if you're a follower of Jesus, they're gifts from God, right? And they belong to him. My job is to steward those things and bear fruit in my life for him. We see this expectation in verse two. At harvest time, he, the owner, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. He had made an agreement with the farmers, right? He said, listen, you're gonna be reliable caretakers. When harvest time comes, I will come and get my portion. They usually would get about half of what that the, the owner owns. So the, the tenant farmers got the other half. That's a pretty good deal here. And it's what we would expect. I mean, if you invested into a 401k right now, what would your expectation be at the end of it? I hope they put it to good use. I hope they invested what I had so that my portfolio would grow. And that's the idea here. But here's where things turn in verse three. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He continues to send these servants to collect what rightfully belongs to him. But instead, these servants are received either with a beating or even by them being killed. Over and over again, this landowner is like, okay, maybe they'll treat this one better. Maybe they'll receive this one better. And in the parable, again, maybe you already have made the connection. Jesus is talking about the prophets. The prophets that God continued to send to the people of Israel in their rebellion over and over and over again to warn them of, way, of the way they're going apart from the Lord. For example, did you know that Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks? Isaiah, history tells us, was actually sawed in two. Zechariah, another prophet of God, was stoned to death in the temple. Nehemiah summed all this up. God's continuing to send the prophets this way, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you, the people of Israel. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. That is what this parable is capturing here. Now, if you're li listening to this story, what are you thinking right now? Kind of like the illustration I did earlier, what, what do you think should happen to the people there in the vineyard? Do you think what they're doing is just? Is it right? Should the owner just ignore what they're doing here? Or is there going to be repercussions for the decisions that they're making here to kill the very people who were supposed to collect what the father owned? 
It gets worse. Verse six, can we read it out loud together? It says, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. This is their last chance. Surely they will respect my very own son. A son whom I love. We probably should recognize that phrase by now in Mark's gospel. Luke actually talked about it earlier this morning and ruined it for me. A beloved son. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Same thing in the transfiguration, right? This is my son, voice from heaven, father saying, listen to him. I love him. And at this point, I'm asking myself the question, how could this owner be so naive? Have you thought that? I mean, so far, what would give him any idea to think that they would actually receive his son at this point? They've rejected everyone he has sent. And friends, if you've never made this connection, that is the audacious love of God. Continuing, continuing, persistently pursuing his people again and again and again to the point where he would eventually send his very own son. Maybe it reminds you of the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But if you do not believe in him, you will perish. If you're following on your notes, like the landowner, the love of God never ceases pursuing his people. Never ceases pursuing his people. Surely they'll receive the landowner's son. Verse seven. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. In the parable, seeing the son may have led the tenants to conclude, hey, if we get rid of this guy, now we will own the vineyard for ourselves and we can take whatever we want from it. And so they assassinate the son and think, oh, now this belongs to us. And I don't want us to miss this. We might be going, oh, that's terrible. But that's the essence of what sin is. Rejecting God. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve took that piece of fruit, what were they doing? They were saying, I want to be my own God. And as we talked about last week, that's where every single human being at one point sits. I want to be the authority of my life. I don't want to give somebody else authority over my life. I want to be the owner of my own vineyard, so to speak. At this point, the religious leaders know exactly what Jesus is saying, right? They know he's referring to them as these tenants who feel like the nation of Israel belongs to them rather than God. And this is why they continue to refuse him, to submit to his authority. He is not fitting into their nice, neat religious system. And so they want to get rid of him. And you may not know this, but this is happening on Tuesday of what we call Holy Week. Three days later. Exactly what Jesus is describing here will happen. The religious leaders will hand him over to be crucified outside of the city. They will be instrumental in the death of God's very own son. And then we come to the heart of the text, our topic today, verse nine. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Pause. What would you do? They just killed your son. Dad's? Happy Father's Day. What would you do if these people had just killed your son? He will come and kill, a better word for that would be destroy, those tenants 
and give the vineyard to others. Such horrible behavior by these tenants is going to be met with decisive judgment and punishment by the owner of the vineyard. They will be destroyed. And the vineyard, which belongs to the owner, will be given to others. If you're following, the owner will justly punish those who rejected his son. And from history, we know this happened again and again in the Old Testament. The original temple was destroyed again in AD 70. Some of you know God's judgment fell on Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. They had felt like it belonged to them. The nation was brought to ruins. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't still have a plan for the nation of Israel. I still believe that they do. But Jesus' point here is at the end of the story is, listen, God is going to destroy what he had built and build something new from it. In fact, the best part of this verse, these passages in verse 10, would you read it out loud with me there? Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. The Lord had done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 118, the very same psalm that the people of Israel were celebrating with him as he came into Jerusalem. I know why I've come, and here is why I have come. The stone the builders rejected. Who are we talking about here? Not the entire nation, but the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, have rejected God's very own son. But God is going to take this tragedy and turn it into something wonderful before our eyes, which is what we're here today because of he took the rejected stone and he makes it the cornerstone upon which his church now stands the whole structure falls on it the rejection humiliation and crucifixion of jesus looks like a tragedy but god will use it for a greater purpose and we can only describe it as that the lord has done something wonderful in our eyes If you're following on your notes, Jesus' rejection becomes the foundation of the new temple. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, just two weeks ago, again, if you're following, you're going to have to write fast. The temple of his body that is open to all who stand on it. All who choose to build their life on him. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. All are welcome to build their lives on the temple. We talked about the temple, right? It was an exclusive place. There were borders where only certain people could go. Now everybody can come to the cornerstone and build their life on him. This is one of the biggest themes of Mark's gospel. The gospel is for everyone. Jesus came for everyone, for you and me, to build our lives upon him. Sadly, this is the way this parable, this text closes, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. We've seen that multiple times. So they left him and went away. They're ready to do the very thing that Jesus said they're about to do, right? They are ready to toss him out of the vineyard and get rid of him. And three days later, that's exactly what they'll do. Now, I would say this isn't the most fun text to preach on, right? It's hard. It's a hard text. But I do believe it offers us three clear takeaways, and I want to spend the rest of our time looking at those. The first one, if you're following on your notes there, is we see the persistent mercy and patience of the Father. 
Did you catch that? Again and again, he's rejected. Again and again, he sends people, listen to me, turn to me, come back to me. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is using Isaiah 5 as a background to this whole parable. And here's what God says to the people of Israel in that, in that passage. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? I mean, he's right. He's done everything he can. He kept showing patience and mercy, sending servant after servant, prophet after prophet. What else could he do? In the same way in this parable, multiple servants demonstrating God's patience and kindness and love who keep reaching out to these people who reject him over and over and over again. How good are you at handling rejection? Are you patient? If your kids say no to you, you're like, that's fine. No, like my patience meter is about here, right? You've got one more chance, not six or seven like we see here. But God's patience never ends for his people. Again and again and again, he will send people. Wives, are you patient when your husband isn't listening to you and you're watching TV? Or he's watching TV? Yes. Go ahead, honey. Again and again and again, God is not like us. Even in rejection, even in sin, he pursues his people. This is one of the major themes of the Old Testament. It's one of the major themes of the New Testament. I love, in fact, what Peter writes in these words I have on your notes again. Second Peter 3.9 says, would you read it? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Yes, this is a story about judgment but it's also a story about God's patience and his incredible mercy. And if we're honest, we're just like the Israelites in our own lives. We're just like them when we reject God and his chasing after us, but he still shows us mercy upon mercy upon mercy again and again and again. In the face of our refusal to receive his love, he persisted and persisted and persisted. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, once said this, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. And if you know Martin Luther, that is exactly what he probably would have done. But instead of turning his back on us, God continued sending his servants and finally he sent his own son so that whoever believed in him, whoever, anyone, may have eternal life. His promise is not endless. His patience is not endless. He will not leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus says. And the truth is, we don't want him to. You don't want him to. I'll come back to that in a couple minutes. But the second thing I just want to mention, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. This passage teaches us that we see our call as God's stewards now, as his people, expected to bear fruit. What did the owner expect? Fruit. He expected a share in what he had invested in, friends. And the same thing for us, right? We are God's stewards. And he expects us to bear fruit for his glory because he's given us so, so much. We talk about this again and again in the church. I think it's so important to realize nothing I have belongs to me. 
I hold it all like this. Lord, use what you've given me for your glory. Help me to invest my life into the things that matter, not just now, but for all eternity. We did a whole series on this, by the way, to start 2023, one of my favorite series that we've ever done about how we can give ourselves fully to Jesus in every area of our lives. For those of you who have built your life on Christ, the cornerstone, do you know that? Are you living that way? I am a steward of what God has given me. I think right here is one of the main differences between understanding Jesus as my Savior and understanding him as my Lord. A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe what he did on the cross for me, and now I have my ticket to heaven, and we're all good. No, when we say Jesus is Lord, these people were just asked, right? Will you let him be Lord of your life each day from now on? That is a thing where you say, yes. And that means I give up control of my life to him, and I give back to him everything that he has given to me. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 4.12. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Let me just lead this in, right? What this ultimately means is one day, every single one of us, whether we want to or not, are gonna stand before the throne of God and he's gonna ask us, what did you do? What'd you do with everything I gave you? What did you do with the vineyard that I have given to you? Did you keep it for yourself? Or did you use it for me? Did you invest your life in what really matters? That's the second thing. The third thing, I've been putting this off, right? This parable clearly teaches us, we see there will be judgment for those who reject the son. It's the part nobody wants to talk about today, but the truth is, we yearn for this. We yearn for justice and judgment. Think back to how I opened that message, right? Poor Jonah. Didn't get what it seemed like I had promised to him. It seems unjust to us. Now multiply that on a much bigger scale. So often in our culture today, you're right, you guys know this, right? That's word judge has been so misused. We're told, you're not gonna judge me. Christians aren't supposed to judge. Well, the problem with that is judge can mean any number of things. One definition of judge, for example, is to discern truth from error. Do you think as Christians, we're not supposed to discern truth from error today? I actually think we are supposed to. Jesus tells us, in fact, that we are in Luke chapter 12, 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? He expects us to be discerning about the things that are right and wrong in this world. Like, think about this. If you see a parent mistreating their child, should you be like, oh, I can't judge that? No, it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. There are things that are wrong and that are evil that need to be judged. We have to discern truth from error. But in this context, there are some things we are not supposed to judge. And if you're following on your notes here, judge means declaring a verdict based on the evidence. This is what we are forbidden to do. We are forbidden to look at somebody's life and then ultimately give them this verdict that you're guilty because only one person in all of the creation knows everybody's full story. Only one person, God, knows all of the evidence about us and who we are. So only God can ultimately be the only righteous, just judge of all who will stand before him. And deep down, I want that. 
I want a God who is going to judge evil and injustice in this world. He couldn't be a good God otherwise. Do you see that? If he just let all of this evil go, we could not call God good. Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, once told the story, this is sad, about his grandmother's death. She had been a slave her whole life. And after a lifetime of bondage to her, to his, to her uh, masters, she became too old to be of use to them. And so you know what they did? They threw her out into the woods. They wouldn't even let her family see her or take care of her. And he asked this question after that. Will not a righteous judge visit for these things? Do you want the answer to be yes? I do. When I see more school shootings, will not a righteous judge visit for these things? When I see needless wars and genocides, will not a righteous judge visit these things? When I see kidnappings and sex trafficking, will not a righteous judge visit these things? And this story tells us he will. In a world that is crooked with ruin and rebellion, what greater tragedy would there be if a good God didn't put those things right? What kind of righteous God would never condemn or punish or deal with the crimes of this world? And though God demonstrates extraordinary patience and mercy, even now, right, instead of just like, I'm done with this, he's like waiting for all to come to him as the Father. Come to me, repent. It won't last forever. Because persistent rebellion results in judgment. One day, perhaps sooner than we expect, he's going to return. And every person, past, present, is going to be ushered to the throne room of heaven. And every person will, be given, will have to give an account of their life. By then, it's going to be too late for repentance. The time for receiving mercy and forgiveness has passed. Grace has reached its end. As Jesus warned in the very beginning of Mark, the time has come. Urgent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this is the part where people get mad or get confused today or get angry about the gospel, right? Well, what does that have to do with me? I've never murdered anyone. I'm not like Hitler. I haven't killed. I haven't cheated on my taxes, whatever, so on and so forth, right? I've been generally a pretty good person. And this is where the rubber meets the road for anyone who will choose to take up their cross and follow Jesus, right? Because according to the Bible, we have. We have all gone astray. We have all gone our own way. Let me just speak for myself right now. You might not recognize any of this in your life, but I have personally rejected God's advances. I have coveted things that belong to others. I have disobeyed God's word at times. Can you believe it? I have, according to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, murdered people with my anger. I have been self-righteous, like the Pharisees. I have broken promises, not kept my word, my oath. I have slandered others, gossiped others. I have not loved my enemies. I know I'm the only one there. I have been greedy. I have been selfish. I have not controlled my tongue. I could go on and on and on. And if you're following on your notes, the evidence of my life of my sin, justifies a guilty verdict. When I stand before God, I deserve to hear guilty. 
And you can't understand the gospel unless you can say that for yourself. Unless you can say, yes, in light of a holy, righteous, perfect judge, I am guilty. But, and it's a big but, sorry. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells me this. If you're on your notes again, Jesus took my guilt on himself and declares me not guilty. Whoever believes is declared not guilty. Romans 3, 23 puts it this way in 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've got to to come to that conclusion, but all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How can we understand grace without first understanding what we deserved in judgment? We can't. He took away my disgusting good and plenty, and he exchanged it for the greatest candy bar of all time. Jonah, come on up, man. (laughs) Not running this time, I see. There you go, man. I'll exchange this disgusting, good and plenty. I mean, it didn't look that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Like I said, worst illustration of all time, perhaps. But I hope you get the idea. He has exchanged my filthy rags. And I've become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Pure, holy, clean. As I stand before him, he declares not guilty. Based on what my son has done for you. Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter 2.6. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Who are we talking about here? And the one who trusts in him and his gospel will never be put to shame. The judge stepped off of the judgment seat. He came himself, lowered himself to take up the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And then says, now come and stand on me, the cornerstone. I will be your firm foundation. You will never be put to shame again. That's the gospel. Have you built your life on him? If you're following, I'll close with this question. Will I build my life on the cornerstone or reject his gift? It's a free gift for every person who understands I cannot measure up but he'll exchange that for life now and everlasting. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know some of us have heard the gospel for our entire lives, the good news, but I pray that we will just never get tired of it. Never get tired of how incredible it is that you have exchanged my dirty, filthy life. Even though I rejected you, even though I turned my back on you again and again and again, you have been so patient with us. Today we understand one more time just how great and deep your love is, your mercy is, your grace is, and your kindness is. You took our place. And if there's anybody here this morning, for the first time they're hearing this, 
I pray that they simply open up their hands and receive the free gift you're offering them. Forgiveness. Pardon. Mercy. Life. So we confess to you together that we often turn our backs on you. But we look to the cross, which we now get a chance to remember as we take communion, where you exchanged my sin for your righteousness. I receive that today, either for the first time or for the hundredth time. We remember that you are not only the judge, but you are the justifier. You will not only condemn, but you are the one who forgives. And for this, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.